Well, let's look at this Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. And I'll read verses 6 and 7, familiar words from Handel's Messiah to you. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and he will be called the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and even forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now you read uh, Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 9 and you see they've got mighty problems. And there is something important that is going on. There's a crisis and it's there, it's the backcloth um, out of which this prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ appears. It's a crisis of faith. It always was in the Old Covenant. Um, Israel wasn't believing God, wasn't trusting him. Or it was trusting him, but it was also trusting the Baals. And so they kept household gods and patted them as they went out through their doors. And then special crises, they went and made sacrifices to the Ashtoreths and the Poles. And they went for consultation to the prophets of Baal. And and they went to God too, but there was no exclusivity. There was no strong bands of love for him and trust in him. It was following those idols. And so God then sending prophets to them and warning them and rebuking them. Um, then picked up his rod and brought uh, uh, a national judgment on the way. Brought them to their knees. The great nation, he says, is going to become a, a wilderness. The land flowing with milk and honey is going to have drought and barrenness. And then Isaiah doesn't use that image, but he uses the image of gloom and darkness in the land. An inhospitable place to come. Um, Yola has been saying to me for the last month, oh, isn't it dark? It doesn't it get dark. Three o'clock, four o'clock, the darkness comes. But well, from now on, every day will be a little longer. It'll be a little brighter. It's the middle of winter, I say to her. Well, these people were wo- walking in darkness day after they were roaming in the gloaming and it was a time then of uh, tremendous distress and strife God is beginning to judge them and this passage uh, of which this is the context provides us with what God will do and it's not just a rod with which he will visit them but a saviour He will come and deliver them. He will send a redeemer who will come to them. And again and again, it's part of the extraordinary grace of God that you see there in the scriptures. God's solution is amazing. Just as it was uh, when God says in uh, chapter 7, I'm I'm going to to provide a, a virgin with a child. That's what's going to happen. A virgin will bear a baby. And it's like him speaking in uh, 
the Garden of Eden and he says words of grace to the serpent for the overhearing Adam and Eve to listen to and be surprised at. He says, I'm going to crush your head. You'll bruise his heel, but the seed of the woman is going to come and this is what he will do and triumph and victory and deliverance will come. He's going to purchase victory over all his enemies, all our enemies. And so we have here in Isaiah chapter 9 a similar sort of prophecy of hope of what God will do in gloomy days. Where is Israel's hope? She's surrounded by nations that would devour her. She's led by a wicked king. And he doesn't worship God. A king who doesn't reign in righteousness. Where is the hope in a situation where we have no leaders? And Isaiah says, it's in a child. A child is going to be born. There's going to be hope. A boy is going to be given. And I'm placing the government on him, on his wee shoulders. And he's going to reign on David's throne forever and ever. We're going to call him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's staggering. Here is this unbelieving King Ahaz, afraid of an invasion. And so what does he do? He makes an alliance with the mightiest nation in the world, Assyria, a totally pagan nation. And he's going to enter into alliance with them that uh, Assyria will protect him from the enemies that are stalking around like jackals wishing to destroy them. That's his hope. No, God says. It's going to be by a child. A child's going to be born. And he's going to deliver. Now, two or three of this uh, uh, comments on this passage before we begin a simple exposition of the names of Christ, I I want you to notice, firstly, how this chapter is, uh, the prophecy is written in the past tense. You see that? The prophetic idiom that is used by Hebrew prophets, first of all, and then by um, Christ's apostles in the New Testament. They speak of the future in the past tense. As though it is absolutely certain if God has said it. And it's done and dusted and completed. It's over. It's certain. The promise. It's yay. It's amen. It's in the Messiah. It's there. His word. And he speaks these words. You see the current uh, picture was one of uh, gloom. Uh, They are dwelling in darkness. But now they have seen... They have seen a great light, he says. The people that dwell in darkness have seen it. He speaks of the joy that has already come. You've enlarged the nation. You've already done it. You've increased their joy. He doesn't say you will multiply the nation and you will multiply their joy. He speaks, you've done it, he says, because this is your intention. And none can thwart the will of God. None can smack his hand and say, what are you doing? Because God is only limited in what he does by his own will. 
And when he determines, then he has all authority in heaven and earth to bring about his desires. So he doesn't say, one day you will multiply the nation and you will increase its joy. He speaks as if it's already happened. The prophetic past tense. It is designed to assure the people of God that though their circumstances are very grim now and they can't look to men, there are no men amongst the priesthood, no men amongst the government of the nation that they can have comfort and reliance in. God has made a promise. God has said something. And whatever God says, uh, to which jots and tittles, God will accomplish those things. He has already set up the machinery of redemption and the wheels are all turning and none, none can throw a spanner in those works. Now you find the same thing in Romans 8, don't you? You find it uh, there in the great golden chain that is, uh, that is found in Romans 8. Whom he predestined, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Well, we know we have yet that last blessing to be experienced in our lives, though calling and justification and predestination have been accomplished by grace, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit to us. Those things are ours. But uh, to be glorified is our hope. When we see him, we shall be glorified. To be absent from the body is to be present, glorified with the Lord. But it's not now, but well, seen from the perspective of God's determination. He's made up his mind. And he will glorify all his people. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. And so the past tense is used here, the prophetic past, to underline that Nothing can stop these things happening. This child will be born. This son will be given. And he will act like this. And then the second thing by way of uh, introduction and background I want you to notice is the rescue is for a child born for a purpose, not any child. Not that our hope is in children. The most uh, cruel and vicious men we've heard about and groaned about in the last few months, they were children. Once, they were helpless babies. Once, there was no hope. There's no hope in a baby. A baby can turn into uh, the incarnation of evil almost. But it's a particular child. It's a specific child. It's a child with a mother. It's a child born in a place where latitude and longitude cross one another. Where there's a stable, it's like uh, uh, Google, you can zero in on it. You can see the outline of the country and then the town and then the street and then the stable and there, in space and in time, there. The baby will be born and he's going to do a work. And it's going to be what we call a vicarious work. Vicar means in the place of. Vicarious means a work done in the place of favored men and women. In the place of those who are joined to him by faith, who have entrusted in him. So he says, verse 6, for to us a child is born. To us 
a son is given. Um, back in Isaiah 7 with the prophecy of the virgin, he says, the Lord will give you a sign. A virgin will be with child and bear a son. And then Luke picks up the language in, in Luke chapter 2 and verse 11. Today is born in the city of David. Today is born to you. To you in the city of David is born. This day a saviour who is Christ the Lord. The child's birth is purposive to us. It draws us in because it's for us. We sit around the table and we give our gifts and the children are looking who's had what and looking as a brother opens a present and a sister opens a present and they're waiting. Then they have a present. This is for you. This is mine. Jesus, my saviour to Bethlehem came. Born in a manger in sorrow and shame. Oh, it was wonderful. Blessed be his name coming for me. For me, we say. We need his salvation. We need his lordship. We need his redemption. We need his saving work in our lives. Um, He comes and we live. And there's great joy. That's Isaiah. He gives two uh, living pictures of scenes of the greatest joy. And uh, the first scene then is of the harvest. Ah, the rain came at the right time and the wheat grew and the corn grew and the grapes have grown and the the olives and the harvest is there and we're all right now for the next few months. We've got food to put on the table, corn to grind, bread to make. We've got it, food for the animals, we've got it, and it's harvest time, and neighbors help one another with their sickles and scythes, and they heap it on a cart, and they rejoice, we're told, as people rejoice at the harvest. And then the second is victory in battle. The Assyrians haven't won. The Moabites and the Ammonites haven't destroyed us, and we've destroyed them, and they've run away and left us, and Here's the plunder, all that's been left, the horses that have been left, and the carts, and the armor, and the clothes, and we've got them, and we rejoice, because we live. And those are the pictures of rejoicing that he uses to say, this is the impact that the coming of the Messiah is going to have on us. And then thirdly notice, and by way of introduction, not, not only is the language in the past tense that it's already happened, not only is this child born for us, for you if you receive him, for you if you will have him, but this child has got a kingly work to do. And uh, that's the language then in verse 6, the government will be on his shoulders. And so this child is being prepared as his mother reads to him from scripture and prays with him and as uh, Joseph, his father, speaks to him, a godly man and a godly mother he has and they remember what the angel has said to them and what his work will be and they are preparing him 
They're gently telling him what's going to be his life's calling, his vocation, what his expectations are. And the witness of the Spirit in him is telling him that this is what he's to be. He's to love God and love his law and love his people and fulfill God's requirements day by day. The government is going to be on your shoulders. They tell him at some time when he can understand shoulders and understand government and realize what his vocation is going to be. And God gives him strength to accept it and grace to do it. So what's the answer to the crisis of the people? It's not the weak, worldly, unbelieving carnal king Ahaz it's not that don't look to men but to this child who is to be born he's the Christ the answer to the crisis a child and he'll bear the kingship his shoulders will be strong enough at each level he grows in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man and he does And he's ready. He's prepared then, after 30 years, he's prepared to come out and be baptized and be tempted and begin his ministry and gather his disciples around him and preach repentance because the kingdom of God is at hand, because the king is at hand. And he goes through Galilee and awakens Galilee. And at the end of three years, he's gathered 500 people around him to whom he comes with encouragement before his ascension into heaven. So he's described for us then this king who is going to come. And he's given these four familiar titles then. In verse 6, he is called Wonderful Counselor. Well, he is going to be, that means, somebody endowed with most extraordinary wisdom. In him are going to be hid all the riches of of wisdom and knowledge. There's going to be no area of life where he has to ask advice or where he he isn't capable of responding as God the Son and the, the man Christ Jesus has to respond. The wonderful counselor. It's uh, as close as the Hebrew gets to saying he's supernatural. The point is obvious. Uh, Ahaz didn't have that wisdom. So Ahaz's confidence was uh, organization and alliance and leadership coming together and sitting around a table and uh, a great fee of gold and silver being given to Assyria to come under then the umbrella of a Syrian victory. It was going to be an absolute disaster for Israel. Ahaz wasn't wise. Ahaz didn't have the wisdom of God. But this child is going to be born and he will possess heavenly wisdom. So Isaiah has spoken to Ahaz and he says, don't enter in, don't think of entering into an alliance with Assyria that that will spare you from the two kings from the north who are working up armaments now and preparing for an invasion of the land. God is not going to let you fall 
to the kings from the north. But it will not be through help from Assyria. But, well, there we are. Ahaz didn't listen. And you can guess who Israel fell to. Israel fell to Assyria. Not to the two kings of the north, but to the people that Ahaz wanted to have an alliance with. Human wisdom. He thought he was smarter than God, so he listens to his prophet. He nods his head. Yes, he says, well, now you're a religious man. Oh, yes, I respect you as a religious man. But you don't know anything about matters military, do you? About warfare. You don't know about matters economic, do you? About politics. About uh, specific political confederation and union. You, you don't know about these things. But, but I do. This is my speciality. Your speciality is to be a preacher and, and to pray. And you please pray for us and, and, and preach the word of God. But this is my business. This is the way I'm going to preserve my throne. It's going to be how I'm going to keep the dynasty of David. It's going to be the way I preserve the nation of Israel. And then what happened? He lost his throne. He lost the dynasty of David. um, Because he had confidence in human wisdom. He wouldn't trust God. But the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. This child, when he is born, he's going to be the wonderful counselor. He's going to be gripped. He's going to be marinated in spiritual wisdom, in the wisdom of the ages, in the wisdom that God had before the foundation of the world. And so these prophecies about how wise the Messiah will be come, uh, Jeremiah 23.5, Behold, the days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as a king, and act wisely, and do justice and righteousness in the land. There it is. He'll be a branch. That's all is needed if he's a divine branch. He doesn't need to be a cedar of Lebanon, because a branch from heaven is stronger than the strongest cedar of Lebanon. Isaiah says the same thing in chapter 53, when he talks about the servant of the Lord. He says, by his knowledge shall my servant justify many. Because he's so knowledgeable. In other words, the wonderful counselor knows what our plight is and all that is needed to be done in order for us to get to heaven. He knows all these things. He knows what we need to be saved. He's a wonderful counselor. Men came to him with their questions. They planned it out. And then their spokesman came and they, they looked him in the eye and they said, is it right for us to give taxes to Caesar? And if he says yes, they say, well, you're working for Caesar. If he says no, he's a revolution. Jesus shows them the head of Caesar on a coin and he says, you render to Caesar things that are Caesar's. You render to God. You render to God the things that are God. Are you rendering? Have you rendered to God? Have you given to God the things he has the right for in this uh, last year? Will you be rendering to God the things that are God's? Jesus 
so wise in dealing with men. Uh, they think of another ploy. They say, um, here's a, a woman, her husband dies, and so her brother-in-law takes her, and he dies. And the next brother-in-law takes her, and she has uh, six brothers-in-law, and one by one they all have her as their wife. Now in the day of resurrection, whose who's wife will she be in heaven? Silly questions like that, meaning to belittle the reality of heaven and what we will be like in, in heaven. And Jesus tells her, well, there won't be sexual intimacies in heaven. We'll be brothers and sisters in heaven, won't we? We won't be hungry. We won't be thirsty. We won't be self-pitying because we lack anything in heaven. We'd be satisfied in heaven, he says. Oh, then there's his teaching in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7, Matthew 5, and the description of the blessed life, and then the, the section on the law. And that it's not just an outward obedience to the law of God, but there's an inward disposition of heart. To love the law and think about it and treasure it. And then chapter 6 and uh, what it tells us about our relationships with one another and to our enemies. And chapter 7 and about not worrying but to trust in, in God and the two builders and the wise man who built his house on on a rock and when the storms and the winds blew his house was saved his life was saved because he was building on the teaching of the Lord Jesus and that that great discourse the great discourse of John 14, 15, 16 and the prayer of chapter 17 he comes and he answers our questions and he counsels and he tells parables that we can remember and sermons that give to us and then through the apostles he speaks Ephesians 5 and 6, be this sort of husband now. Be this sort of wife. Be this sort of child. Be this sort of boss. Be this sort of servant. Colossians 4, it, he repeats it in other ways with other nuances. You need, you need to come every Sunday and listen to the word of God. To listen to how it teaches us, how we are to live, how we are to behave our lives. It's absolutely indispensable for happiness let alone for living a life that gives glory to God you get grace given to you to be the sort of person God wants you to be the wonderful counselor meets with us on the Lord's day and secondly he's the mighty God and we are told that very directly aren't we that is, that he is God Almighty, that he is God the warrior, that he is the Almighty One in the flesh. And here is Isaiah, and he's giving full testimony to the divinity of Jesus Christ with a grand, unashamed flourish. He will be the mighty God. He doesn't back down. He doesn't say he'll be like the mighty God, or he'll be a servant of the mighty God. He says this child will be called Mighty God. And the New Testament picks it up straight away, doesn't it? And John's Gospel opens. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
tells us that. Not like God, not similar to God, but God in the flesh, God dwelling among us, and us beholding the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Or Titus, Paul writes to him, chapter 2 and verse 13, and he says we're waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's the testimony. Again, in Scripture, who is he? He's the great God and Savior. That's who he is. And in the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 1 and verse 8, they say, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. That's who we're looking for. And so when you turn to the New Testament, where do you find the greatest evidences for the divinity, the godness of our Lord Jesus? Well, you find it in the Gospels. You find it during his state of humiliation. You find at that time he speaks to the winds and waves. He condemns a fig tree. He turns water into wine. The first of his miracles is power over creation. Only God has that power. His power over disease, the leper. The man born blind. The power over demons. The woman who brings her child to, to God. The parents who bring their son to God incarnate. And he delivers. And he restores. And he heals. This is who Jesus is. His power over death. What greater evidence. The magicians, uh, they appear on television and they tantalize us. And we wonder how they do their tricks. But they don't have moral character. And they don't have profound teaching. They don't preach another sermon on the mount. They, they're not like that. They're entertainers. And there's wonderful trickery involved. But not with the Lord Jesus Christ at all. His deeds. His moral authority. His power. He's the mighty God. Who is Jesus Christ? He's my God and Savior. That's what we say. You're my brother. And thirdly, he's the everlasting Father. Not just the wonderful counselor and the mighty God and the everlasting Father. And oh, That's a nice phrase. It jumps out at us, doesn't it? We say, well, um, are you saying that uh, he... He is just, uh, son is just another name for God. Father is just another name for God. Are you saying that? Holy Spirit is just another name for God. The son is just one mode or manifestation of God. Father is just one mode or manifestation of God. Holy Spirit is just one mode or manifestation of God. Is that what you're saying? Oh no, this passage is not confusing the Messiah with God the Father. God the Father didn't come into the world and was born of Mary and died on a cross and lay dead for a few days. That wasn't God the Father. We don't believe in patropassionism. That was Jesus Christ. What Isaiah is doing is attributing now to God the Son the the power, the authority, the providing care, the ministry of God 
comes to us through Jesus Christ. He's our Father in the way He cares for us. Uh, My God shall supply all your need through Jesus Christ. That's what we're told. In the Old Testament, the kings were called fathers. They were the father of the nation. They were the spiritual and governmental fathers of the people. So in the Ten Commandments, when we come then to the Fifth Commandment, honor your father and your mother, then we know that that means we honor all those in authority. We honor our our pastors. We honor our grandparents. We honor our elders. We honor our teachers in school. Children are respectful to the headmaster, our lecturers, to the police. We show respect to our boss. We are respectful because we honor those that God has put over us in authority. And in the Old Testament, one of the ways that was shown is by calling kings fathers. And Jesus is the everlasting father. That is, he is the eternal ruler, the eternal government. The the everlasting spheres, the nebulae of heaven. And the Lord Jesus is the father of them and the atom. And the snow when it comes and the sun when it shines. He's in control of our lives. When illness comes, it's not the devil that's brought it into our lives. God gives permission to Satan to touch Job, but he says no further. God was in control. Jesus is in control. He's the everlasting father of each one of us. And so his reign will know no end. It's everlasting. It must have been uh, awful in 1938-39 For the generation of my parents who had gone through the First World War, had known many people, and left their plaques, uh, members of churches, and there on the wall, their names were recorded. They'd given their lives 20, 21 years of age. And it wasn't 20 years and there's another war. Is Jesus Christ in control? Is he the everlasting Father? Does he rule? Has he looked away and the devil has taken over for a while? And he is the everlasting father, the eternal father. He was in 1939 and he is in 2014 and will be in 2015. There will be no end, verse 7, to the increase of his government or of his peace. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then and even for evermore. There will be no end to it. The vastness of the universe. There's no end to the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. The eternal father of all the creation that's come forth from him. He's begotten the cosmos. And then fourthly he's the prince of peace. The wonderful counsel, mighty God, everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The one who's going to bring peace to his people. The weak king, the weakling king, the wicked king. Uh, Ahaz is not going to, he's not going to bring peace to the land. But a child is going to do it who is the Prince of Peace. 
And then you have all the wonderful prophecies about it. Micah 5, 4. He will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace, Micah says. And the New Testament picks it up then. This great theme, so thrilling to them. Luke 2, 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Peace that will characterize their lives. Jesus speaking the night before his crucifixion. Peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives, give I to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Don't let them be afraid. It's going to be peace. I'm going to ensure you live at peace And the preaching in Acts chapter 10 and verse 36. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel. Preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That was the great apostolic message. Or Romans 5. Therefore being justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or Ephesians 2.14. For he himself is our peace. Or Colossians 1, God reconciled all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross, through him, whether things in heaven or things on earth. He's made peace. And the author of the Hebrews ends, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, may he then, through the blood of the eternal covenant, Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Keep us. Keep us everyone. So. There we are. He's going to bring peace. So here is a man called Simon. And he's a zealot. And Jesus says. Come and follow me. And then he goes into an office of a tax collector. And he sees Matthew. And uh, he says to him. Come follow me. And the tax collector is a quizzling serving Rome. And Simon is a zealot. And Simon wants to. Cut the head off every Roman legionnaire he can see. And they come to Christ. And there's no hint of any tension between them. Because now ah, they have found a Lord and a God. And they want to speak about him. And they don't want to speak about what we'll do if we can chase the Roman legions into the sea. Or what all I'll buy with the money I'll get as a tax collector. It's Jesus. Jesus Christ the Lord. And there's peace between such men. And he does that. Jew and Gentile. In such contempt for one another. Full of ribaldry and and cynicism. And then in the church they come and they gather together. There's no Jew or Gentile any longer. So let's conclude. Two things to say in closing. The first is... uh, That Isaiah's hope is in this person, this child. His hope is all in him. Wonderful counsel of mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. It would be a shame to go through the Christmas season and hear messages about uh, the, the incarnation of God and him not become your Lord. Wouldn't that be a shame? That you'd handled the presents and eaten the turkey. and Enjoyed the games and relaxed. And you'd missed the big thing. You'd missed Christ. 
wouldn't that be sad? So that you have to believe in him. You have to trust in him. We were sitting around the table yesterday. We'd had our meal and the children had gone into the other room with their games and all this business. And uh, we uh, ate. We're talking there. So I said to them, now, you tell me, what's the difference between simple faith and easy believism? Ooh, they said. Some of them said, what a good question that is. And they all had answers. And they all had contributions. Easy believism was um, faith without repentance. It was without turning from sin. That's easy believism. It's uh, signing a form, raising your hand, saying you've become a Christian. But there's no change in your life. There's no holiness of life as a consequence. No new creation in Christ Jesus. You just make say, yes, I believe in him. And it made no difference. Easy believers and simple faith. And simple faith is taking God at his word. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And thou shalt be saved. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You come. You believe, because the mandate is in the command. And you respond to that command. And you come to him, just as you are. You don't wait till you're better. till you feel more religious. You come, and you trust, and you believe. Simple faith alone in Christ alone. And then the fruit of it is shown in a simple life of following him and serving him. (sighs) Know that. Make sure you know that. And act on it. And then uh, the last verse 7 is the future looking how you're going to live as a Christian. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. You won't accomplish it. To take up your cross and deny yourself, you won't be able to do it. But, but he'll enable you. He'll be with you. Through every day of the new year, he'll be with you. I'm going to do it. I've made up my mind to make you like Christ. I've made up my mind to glorify you. I've made up my mind every time you fall to pick you up again. I've made up my mind to give you strength. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. He tells us again and again that what his grace will do. The zeal of God. God's zealous. Wales, Argentina, China, North America, Alaska, Australia. All over the world today God is zealously working in the lives of all his people. Performing what he has promised. He will do. If he begins a good work, he will complete it in the day of Christ. And the zeal of the Lord. Aren't you glad that your Lord is a Lord of zeal and that he's determined to save you? Lord, bless your word now. Thank you that you are the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Thank you. Thank you for this. Oh, make us respond in wonder, love, and praise 
to submit so gently to you and long each day that you would complete the work that you have begun in us many, many years ago and still are completing it now. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Here, number 203, the paraphrase, the Scots paraphrase, the race that long in darkness pined has seen a glorious light, the people dwell in day who dwelt in death's surrounding light. 203. of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen.